Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Welcome back to Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli security, military, diplomatic and intelligence practitioners and experts. And our guest for a second part of our conversation is Ambassador Reuven Merhav, a former Director General of the Foreign Ministry and a veteran of Mossad, Shabak and the Israeli military. Welcome back, uh, Reuven. Hi. So when you were recruited by the Internal Security Agency at the turn of the 60s, um, in the early 60s or late 1950s, there was a, a military administration prevailing in Israel whereby Arabs who lived um, in the uh, Galilee or in central Israel could not uh, uh, move out of their areas without permission of a military governor. And you said that this was the reason you did not want to work vis-a-vis the Arab clients, customers, so to speak, of Shabak. Why was that? Uh, was that a moral, philosophical reason? Well, in my first year at university, I, uh, there were a few Arab students. And... They were quite all right. They thought they, they, they knew everything, but when it came to classic Arabic, uh, they had a bit of difficulty because they spoke the, the colloquial daily Arabic, but they learned. And uh, uh, they were all well-dressed. They regarded the university as a very serious place. But I found out that uh, when, they had to, when they wanted to come to Jerusalem, they had to have a special permit. And uh, I said, why, why, why should that be so? Because they were registered at the university. They said, that's a rule, that's a regulation. And I didn't like it. So when I was offered to join the, the Arab branch or, or section of the, of the Shabak, of the uh, security service, uh, I, I refused. I said, we are a, we are a, a democracy. If you have something against any particular citizen, uh, you can sue him, you can do whatever you like according to the law, but you cannot uh, limit his, uh, his movements. And I refused to serve in such an organization. Was there a reason they were considered security risks, a potential no, fifth no column? No, this was just a, rem- a remainder of, of, the, of the war of independence. But we were 12 years after the war. And uh, things were quiet, and there was no problem whatsoever. And they could, but this they could uh, they were free to uh, to participate in the general elections, and they had members of parliament, and they started to find a way into the Israeli administration. Though it was a very slow process, but I, I found it was uh, irregular and unfair to do so. 
So we no, we now um, regard Shabak as uh, mostly a counter-terror organization. But at that time, counter-espionage was even more prominent. This was not... A, I mean, they, they did so... Uh, did so without any consideration. I mean, if you put a general regulation on someone, why should he? I mean, he lives in Nazareth, he wants to come to Jerusalem. Counter-espionage as regards the uh, Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc where you were tasked. Uh... No, there was no problem with the Soviets anyway at, at that time regarding the Arabs. This was just... Not the Arabs, just, just espionage and uh, moles penetrating uh, the Israeli society. Your line of uh, work. My line of work, so I... I said, thank you very much. I'll see you next week or whatever. Anyway, and after two weeks or so, they called me and said, uh, we understand you, we don't agree with you, but that's a regulation. But we have the Soviets here and they do give, give us hell. And are you willing to do that? Because they not only give us hell, they also, whatever they get, they give to the Syrians or to, to the Egyptians or to the Iraqis. I said, okay. So I started the seven years of work with the, against the Soviets, which was very, very interesting. And uh, uh, until I was uh, moved to Tel Aviv and then abroad. But uh, So you, you had uh, to keep uh, watch on their uh, diplomats or spies um, undercover and also run at least one famous double agent. First of all, the Jerusalem branch wasn't too active, but we knew that they they have a, they had a, a religious representation in the what you call the Russian quarter in the center of Jerusalem, and uh, we we knew that the administrative officer there is not is is not a priest, he is a KGB man because uh, it was obvious, and we knew something. We had information from other services, and apart from that. Uh, we knew that uh, we had uh, volunteers, we had people who came from, from the Soviet Union, very few of them, and uh, the, the Russians, uh, for, as a condition to give, let them out, said you must sign something and you must work for us and so on. And uh, we said, okay, you can do that, but under control and so on. And so we slowly found out who were the KGB and GRU officers and the, and the embassy. And we found out that 80% of them, uh, of the embassy, which was in, in Ramat Gan, near Tel Aviv, uh, are, uh, are uh, intelligence officers. Is the legend um, from Cold War days true that the ambassador's chauffeur is really the resident, the head of the KGB station? No, not necessarily, but he can, <laughs> he can play a role. But one thing for, was for sure, the ambassador was never an intelligent officer. And, uh, and uh, we, we found out and we slowly, covered, we slowly covered their activities and we found out that they uh, tried to work very hard, but their results were very minimal. Now, when the Cold War ended, it turned out that um, the KGB officers and the GRU officers, uh, to some extent, were more knowledgeable about the true condition of the Soviet Union um, and uh, the uh, ratio of forces between their country and the West. And that they tried to uh, inform the leadership so that decisions 
would be better taken. So intelligence had a positive effect. Maybe Israel, by working against these intelligence officers, missed an opportunity to portray, even to the Arab clients of the Soviets, the true situation, especially in the run-up to the Six-Day War. Well, first of all, after the Six-Day War, they, they disappeared. They cut their relations. They evacuated the embassy. And the only people who were still working for the Soviet intelligence were the administrative officer in the various religious missions of the, in, in, in Jaffa, in Jerusalem, and in Tiberias. And we knew exactly who they were, and uh, they, they, they were very, very cautious about it. And uh, there was no really harm done. No, but the question uh, goes to, to uh, this issue. Uh, tactically, you don't want the other side to know uh, where your forces are located, obviously your intentions. But strategically, if you show them that you have no hostile intentions and they are convinced this can help de-escalate tensions, as was not the case in April, May, June of 67. You are right, because <laughs> the intelligence officers, they didn't have any in independent mind. And they created the product of their intelligence work according to the directions which they received. There was one famous example when the then Soviet ambassador to, to Israel, Mr. Chuvachim, in May of, uh, of uh, 67, he was called to Eshkol. Eshkol was in a pyjama, and on that he put a suit, and he called them to the suite in the Hotel Dan in Tel Aviv. And Eshkol told them very simply, we have no intentions what, uh, whatsoever to start a war. Please go to your uh, colleagues and uh, uh, send this message to the Egyptians that we have no intentions to, to fight them. But if they fight, we'll, uh, of course, we'll resist it. And uh, we, we, we did it through many double agents, and it didn't work because uh, the people who were supposed to accept or to receive these warnings, our warnings, were blind and they were operating according to the f previous instructions they issued. So we have to run uh, a bit faster over your uh, work with uh, Shabak security uh, operations in, in Iran, um, the uh, Israeli uh, delegations abroad after Munich. What was your conclusion based on uh, the problems and some of the mishaps which befell Israel because the Palestinians were one step ahead of it? I'm not so sure because later on it was found out that they're not one step ahead of us, they're 10 steps behind us. It depends on, on the situation. And when the Palestinians were sure that they have international support, they were up high and the, the problem with the Palestinians, as Abba Evan, later foreign minister, said, they never missed a chance to lose an opportunity. And this is very true. And this was true also 15 years later when I was at Camp David, 
And uh, Arafat didn't even respond to the letter of Barak of the 23rd of July, uh, telling him we can do this and that, and why don't we go ahead? This is diplomatically, but security-wise, professionally, Munich and and uh, some uh, Israeli um, emissaries and delegations were attacked. Well, it doesn't have to do with the... You mean the, the our counter-terror work? Uh, The the, the Arabs have developed and they have, uh, first of all, they they used it against their own regimes and they they used it against Sadat and they used it against Hussein and they used it in Syria and so on. You made some um, very interesting uh, friends or acquaintances such as Haile Selassie and Jomo Kenyatta. Um, Does any particular personality trait come to mind? I never met Haile Selassie. I met some of his people. Uh, Kenyatta was a, was a great personality because he understood in time what we can do and what they cannot do. And he uh, managed with the help of a person like McKenzie, whom I mentioned. Bruce McKenzie. Bruce McKenzie, who was very close to him and he was a very uh, close friend of us, uh, that uh, there is a time to stop shooting and if you create the real conditions, you can go ahead and build your nations. And uh, if you combine to that his magnetic leadership and his way of controlling the, 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 the multitudes, and when he used to enter a stadium and, and raise his, uh, his flag and shout Harambe all together, I mean, everyone was fascinated. So you, it, it takes such a leader with... With the, with the magnetism, and uh, let's not forget that he paid very dearly for it before he was. And uh, But we must also understand that the British at that time understood when the time was over, and they have to pay a price, and they'll have Kenya on their side for, for years, and they succeeded with it. But they did not succeed in placating the tribal warfare between the Kikuyo of which... Kenyatta was a leader and the others. Can, uh, <laughs> you think there is a way to, to finish the tribal wars in Lebanon or to finish the tribal wars in Iran if you wanted, if in, in, Saudi, in, in the Yemen or in Israel? So, so you were, uh, you shifted from Shabak to Mossad and you were uh, essentially Mossad's men in Ethiopia and then uh, Kenya. What was the difference between these two organizations? Both of them, of course, serve under the prime minister. And actually, Golda Meir asked, um, at least at one time, for an extension of your being loaned from Shabak to Mossad. The uh, idea was to use the capabilities of Shabak to create special relationships. And with uh, centralistic countries, if you have access to the main ruler, to the, chi- to the chief, usually under the chief, you have security and intelligence service of their own. And if you get the access to that pe- person and you get access to his assistance, you have it. And you, you can develop relations and uh, you can develop it into, into military, into uh, intelligence, to economic, to political, to diplomatic situations. And this is what we did, sometimes with success, sometimes without success. Now, it was, of course, very important for Israel as a transportation hub for trade, for some uh, basis for clandestine work, 
because obviously Egypt was north of your area of operations, but it must have been very frustrating that under Israel's greatest uh, time of crisis in 1973, many of these African countries uh, turned out to be ingrate. And uh, even though, especially under Golda Meir as foreign minister, the Israeli agricultural and other experts helped them a lot, they knuckled under to Arab pressure and broke relations. Well, it's true, but you, you must understand that, first of all, the Egyptians made a very skillful use of the, of the charter of the, of, the, uh, of the African Organization of Unity. And uh, they, they, they did it in a very skillful way. But what we did is we, we managed somehow under the radar to continue certain connections until uh, later on. So it was, it was a disaster. It was a great flop for us, but we, we survived. In the time left, let's talk about two issues which became interconnected, Iran and Lebanon. You were in Iran under the Shah, first with the uh, NIOC, with the uh, Iranian uh, oil uh, company, uh, and then as uh, Mossad's representative uh, to Savak and uh, other organizations. You had some foreboding that eventually the empire will collapse, didn't you? Well, the thing is, it's like having a, 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 a bath full of water, and eventually, slowly, slowly, you have drops of, of acid into it, and after a certain point, the whole bath is becoming acid. This is what happened in Iran. The acid was uh, negative propaganda, and the moment the the, uh, the, the charts or the, the gates for this propaganda were open by means of mass communication broadcast by Khomeini from Iraq and later on from Paris. Against the Shah, not necessarily against, against Israel. Against the Shah, nothing to do with Israel. It was clear to, to me that the time, uh, that we live on limited time. And I remember when I left Iran on, on the 18th of August, uh, 1978, I, I asked my successor to write a small note. I received from Ruben one Iran complete, which goes to show that I explained to him that his time is limited because the, uh, the Shah became very weak. I didn't know at that time that he was sick already. His administration was too centralistic. He was dealing with thousands of issues at the same time because he wouldn't uh, delegate any authority to anybody. And at the same time, the acid from abroad came in slowly but surely. And you could have assessed that the military and the security forces will hesitate and will not uh, open fire on the demonstrators. No, I, I, I was sure that the acid is stronger than the elements inside. It's only a question of time because it's like an earthquake. You know that we, you live on a shelf and you know that something will happen. Can you, can you tell me what date it will be? Here in Jerusalem we live, in 1927, there was a terrible earthquake here. Did anybody foresee that it will happen on 2027? I'm telling you that perhaps tomorrow there will be a terrible earthquake here. 
cannot give you the, the time? I cannot. So Israel could have done nothing except cut short its investment and its cooperation regarding missiles. We know from what the students found at the occupied U.S. embassy that there was a project codenamed FLOWER between General Tufanyan, the Deputy Minister of Defense, and uh, Defense Minister Peres, later Weizmann, to develop uh, such a surface-to-surface uh, weapon, missile, uh, which uh, fortunately for Israel was still in pre-development phase. It happened earlier, and I must tell you that when I learned of this one, I went, I went uh, uh, to the head of the Mossad, I'm telling you, tomorrow there will be a Meshogana. Uh, 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 a crazy ruler. A crazy ruler, and all these missiles will be in Tel Aviv. And he said, not only that, Haka said, Haka, the head of Mossad. General Khofi. That he said that uh, some of these missiles can find their way to Russia and create a world war. And because some of them would uh, be armed with unconventional yeah, warheads. Yeah. And I was very much against it, and I made, made no secret of it. But the, the system was so much imprisoned by the will to make the two or three or four billion dollars which they have lost in, this, in, the, in the Yom Kippur War, that they said, let's go ahead and we'll make the best of it. Well, there was another reason too, uh, perhaps not, not uh, as important as uh, the uh, financial aspect, and that is to diversify Israel's interests around the world, especially with pariah states like South Africa or, or Iran, not only the United States and following the break with France. Now, Lebanon. Uh, you were... No, no, let, let's, let's get back one minute. Uh, that's true what you're saying, but uh, uh, the, the, the financial thing, this is what Rabin explained to Haka, that we were such in, in, in dire straits after the uh, Yom Kippur War that we needed that money very much. And, uh, and uh, Tufanyan was willing to give us an open check to do the thing. And uh, uh, I remember I, I, I went to the head of, of the intelligence. I went to the, to the to Haka. I went to all people, many others. Anyway. Now, the, the Lebanese forces, uh, and within the Lebanese forces, Bashir Jamal's phalange, your relations um, with them preceded the Lebanon War of 1982. What can you tell us about? It started in 76 when they came, when they came to Rabin, and Rabin said... Uh, we will help you to help yourself. We will give you uh, equipment. We'll try to do intelligence operations together, but that's it. We'll not fight for you. And the fact is that uh, Israel failed, and I'm sorry to tell you that the Mossad failed in that because we were drawn more and more into the... Uh, Raised with a with a with with a phalang. These these are the northern Lebanese Christians, not the southern Lebanese, where Israel had some enclaves after 1978, and was trying to work with locals, even though many of the inhabitants were Shiite. Yeah, it's. Uh, because at that time, the, the balance of power in the south shifted against the Christians because of the influx of Palestinians, particularly uh, Palestinian forces, after they were evicted from Jordan in uh, late 70, 
the power of the Palestinians grew much, and we got we uh, got lots of uh, assaults from southern Lebanon, and we created a security zone, which uh, which in hindsight was not a clever thing to do. You recount a, a very uh, interesting anecdote regarding your immediate superior, David Dave Kimchi, who uh, did not uh, obey orders regarding. Uh, aspects of the liaison uh, with um, Bashir Jamal and when he did it the second time uh, he was uh, asked to retire it's true and then he he became the director general of the foreign ministry a position which you yourself found yourself in eight years later that's the rotation of personalities you can't do anything I can give you many examples from other countries. So, but why did you leave Mossad when, as you say, uh, you were uh, groomed for the top and perhaps could have competed for uh, the uh, directorship of Mossad? Because I thought the Mossad at that time uh, followed too much what the Christians wanted, and I didn't trust the Christians, and I thought we are committing a great, great mistake. And I complained once, twice, or twice, and then after all, I was... Uh, I was in a fairly senior position, but I was not in a decisive position. So in 1983-84, you were a de facto ambassador to Beirut following the uh, Israeli invasion and uh, interim uh, presence in, in Beirut. What can you um, tell us? How can you sum up this experience in, in a few words? You see, it's all it's the same game with different uh, with the personalities changing positions. Because in in uh, in seventeenth of May nineteen eighty three there was an agreement reached under the supervision of the Americans withdrawal of forces from Lebanon and we we signed it and then uh, it was agreed that there would be a committee uh, to supervise it a Lebanese uh, an American and an Israeli with my, one minor actor absent the Syrians the Syrians yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the Syrians opposed it, and they thought the Americans they were not accepted because it recognized the presence of Israel. So, uh, but at that time, the, uh, Kimchi was the director general of the foreign ministry. I was representing the coordinator for Lebanese affairs in the Ministry of Defense, a job created by under the leadership of Minister Arens, and 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 executed very skillfully by late Uri Rubrani. And uh, uh, Kimchi told me that he can't find any Israeli to fulfill the job. A, a very risky position. Very risky position. I said... Uh, so um, so late, I, later on, we, <laughs> we ran out of time. Later on, you uh, uh, started the uh, relations with China from your Hong Kong uh, perch. And then Minister Ahrens asked you to serve as Director General of the Foreign Ministry, where the Deputy Minister was a certain Bibi Netanyahu, but apparently um, this will have to await the translation of your memoirs into English and other languages. For the time being, Ambassador Ruven Merhav, thank you very much for the two parts of our conversation, and we will be back for another edition of Watchmen Talk very soon.
Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.